When we look into the night sky, we might feel a sense of insignificance, of smallness. We're just a pale blue dot in a sea of darkness speckled with little bits of light. And this makes us uncomfortable. So we distract ourselves with pleasure, entertainment, and consumption, but the feeling never really leaves us. But the Bible, on the other hand, does not distract from, but actually embraces our smallness as a means of magnifying the grace and kindness of God. The infinite God of the universe bestows upon us his image. He gives us a destiny, not of mindless oblivion, but glory and honor. And Hebrews 1, 5 to 2, 18 unveils this glory through the lens of the incarnation of God, the enfleshment of God in Jesus Christ. So the God of the universe not only cares for us, but Shockingly, he takes on flesh and dwells among us that he might pull us out of our misery and sin into eternal glory. This is Understanding Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 1, 5 to 2, 18 in four parts. First, we're going to look at Jesus' supremacy over the angels. That's 1, 5 to 14. Second, the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Third, Jesus as the destiny of humanity, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. And finally, Jesus as our ever-present help, chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. So let's look at that first idea that Jesus is greater. He is supreme over the angels in verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1. Let me read it for you. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So this first section is arguing for Jesus' supremacy over the angels. And it features seven Old Testament quotations that support that idea. The first three quotations come from Psalm 2-7, 2 Samuel 7-14, and most likely Deuteronomy 32-43, although some think it comes from Psalm 97, but the ideas are relatively the same. Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14 center around a promised Messiah or anointed one. Psalm 2-7 names this anointed one as a king. Uh, and this king is referred to as God's, God's son, just as an adult son who manages his father's business 
images the authority of the Father, so too this king, as a son, images the authority of God over all the nations. So there is a king that God sets up as ruler of all the nations, and 2 Samuel 7.14 expands upon this promise with the additional information that this messianic king, this anointed one, God's son, comes from the line of David. God promises that he's going to build David a house, a lineage that will execute God's rule over his people forever in perfect righteousness. Now, the Old Testament shows us that none of David's descendants filled this role. In fact, they did quite the opposite. It's a very sad story. You know, Solomon is David's son. He starts off well. He does build God's house, but he falls into grievous sin, and the nation of Israel splits into two in a horrible civil war. And the Messianic hope begins to falter. It's, it's, it's coming off of this and saying, well, if all these kings, all of David's sons are really failing, what's going to win out in the end? Human sin or divine promise? And the messianic hope that develops in the Old Testament is saying God's promise will always win. That despite human sin, where sin abounds, grace will abound all the more. And these strands find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The son that God sets up, who he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you, and the royal heir of David find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul declares in both Romans 1.4 and Acts 13.33 that the beginning of the son refers to the installation of Jesus as the Davidic king, that his resurrection is God setting his son, saying, this is the one who will rule the nations, who will reign over all as my imager as the one who, who exercises my authority on my behalf. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's great. So Jesus is the son of David, the royal heir. He's God's representative to rule over the nations. That's awesome. That just gets you to a really, really powerful human. But that's where Hebrews brings in this final witness, or this, rather this third witness of Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. That's the original context, and it's modified a little bit here, saying, let all God's angels worship him. Now, sons of God is a reference to angels. So when it says, bow down to him, all gods, it's referring to the sons of God, which is referring to the angels. It's just something that's used in the Old Testament. Don't let that freak you out. Just when you see sons of God or, or gods, lowercase g, plural, that's talking about angels or heavenly creatures. And what we see here, and don't miss the point, is that these gods, these heavenly creatures, these angels, they bow down to God, which means that they worship him. And only God deserves worship. So it's talking about in heaven, on the throne, there is God, and all of heaven's creatures worship and bow down to him. Now, Hebrews takes Deuteronomy 32.43 about the angels worshiping God, and applies it to Jesus. That the angels are bowing down to Jesus because he's God, because only God can receive that kind of worship. So the exaltation of Christ through his resurrection and ascension reveals what his humiliation, his earthly life before and up to the cross, before the ascension and resurrection of Jesus, his time of humiliation, what that concealed. The resurrection reveals what was concealed, and that is his glorious divinity. And Hebrews quotes Psalm 104.4 to show that God uses angels and heavenly creatures to bring about wind and fire as servants who follow his orders, but the Son reigns supreme over all as kings. Right? The angels are created creatures. They're servants, but the Son is of a different class. He is high above all of them. Now, Hebrews brings in three additional witnesses from the Old Testament. 
First, Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, 6-7, in which the Davidic king, who's curiously addressed as God, receives from God a kingdom because of his righteousness. Now, sometimes the Old Testament will use the title God in a lesser sense to denote a human figure who pronounces the judgment of God, who represents his authority. So, for example, in Exodus 7.1, God makes Moses like a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is his prophet. Now, he's not saying that Moses is God, and neither is this psalm saying that the king is God, but rather that they execute the commands of God. They execute his reign as a king like a God, but as God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ does it in a unique way. And so what we're seeing here is that what was saying in the Old Testament, yeah, you can sometimes call a king like a God. We're saying we're going to expand upon that and say in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we see Jesus actually is the king who is God. He's not just like God. He's not just representing God. He actually is God. It's taking what's in seed form in the Old Testament and bringing it to full bloom in the New Testament. And that's why you see, again, Psalm 102, 25 to 27. It's a psalm about God who laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, right? In the beginning. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1-1, right? God created all things in the beginning. That all things depend on their existence on God, and God depends on, on creation for nothing. That the only thing that you can ascribe the act of creation to is God. God's the only creator, and that is being ascribed to Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one true and living God who created all things, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's all referring to Jesus. That the eternality and immutability or changelessness of God is now being spoken of Jesus. And this brings us to the third and final quotation, which comes from Psalm 110, one of the key psalms in the New Testament, in which God places his son at his right hand and promises victory over his enemies. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God as the God-man, as the incarnate man. All right, so you, you think to yourself, well, wasn't he always at the right hand of God as the son? Well, he's talking with regard to his human nature, that Jesus... In his human life, lived a very humble life, and then through his death and resurrection, he's ascended, and now he's given a new position as a human, as a God-man, right? As a, this is something new for the human uh, nature of Jesus to be elevated to this status, and now he reigns above all. And God says to Jesus with regard to his human nature that you will reign over all your enemies, that I'll put them all under your feet, and that's going to that's gonna happen when he returns. So when, he's, when, you, when you see human language, referring to Jesus with regard to his human nature, so being appointed something, um, rising up to the right hand of God, dying, rising, all those human type of things are with reference to Jesus' human nature because he's truly human. And then all of the divine things that you will never change, that you laid the foundations of the earth, that all God's angels worship you, those are in reference to the divine nature. Okay, remember, Jesus Christ... One man, one person, two natures, always connected together, but always distinguished, never mixed, right? But always united in the one person of Jesus Christ. So, to call Jesus a mere angel is to, is, is to downgrade his authority and the, and the glory of his humanity. Because, shockingly, uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews says that angels exist to serve mankind into receiving their salvation. And that's a reference to the resurrection and the renewal of all things. It's not just forgiveness of sins. When you read salvation, there's a broader horizon for that. And so the angels are actually there to serve us, to actually point us to Jesus who brings us that fullness of salvation. 
So Jesus reigns supreme over all the angels, both as the exalted God-man, as God in the flesh, born in the line of David, who fulfills the promise of the Messiah, who's going to reign forever and going to execute God's justice over the nations, and he reigns supreme over the angels as God himself, the one who laid the foundation of the earth, whom all angels worship. This means that when we hear Jesus speak, we're hearing God speak, and that means we must pay attention. And that brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the next section of uh, our breakdown, the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant, right? We need to pay attention. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So why does Hebrews spend so much time on angels? Well, it's because the old covenant order, Judaism, the thing that the audience of Hebrews feels tempted to turn back to, came through the agency of angels. And we learned that in Galatians 3.19, right? It talks about how the law came through angels. Angels act on behalf of God to relay messages to the prophets. They destroy opposing armies. They aid God's people in their calling. So angelic agency, angelic activity, is what brings about the old covenant to Israel. Now, the new covenant is different, right? Remember, think about it this way. Jesus is superior to angels. Angels delivered the old covenant. Jesus delivers the new covenant. Therefore, the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Therefore, if you're thinking about turning back to Judaism, you're downgrading, you're going backwards, and that's not a good thing, right? So we often incorrectly assume that the old covenant God, the Old Testament God, he loves judgment, he's trigger happy, whereas the new covenant God, in the New Testament, Jesus loves grace and mercy, right? He just finally chills out. But Hebrews actually says it's the opposite, that the judgment in the old covenant is just a microcosm of the judgment in the new covenant, that the blessings of salvation are ratcheted up and the curses of, of condemnation are ratcheted up as well. So think about it this way. When Israel was disobedient, God sent them into exile. But the exile in the new covenant is not just getting kicked out of the land, it's eternal separation from God. Conversely, the blessing of Israel is when they are obedient, they receive all the bounty of a flourishing land. But it, the blessings of the new covenant is you receive a cosmic deliverance. You receive cosmic salvation, that all of creation will be glorified and magnified, and sin and death itself will be destroyed. So think about it this way. Again, the angels through whom God brought the old covenant, they have blessings and curses. Jesus, through whom God brings a new covenant, has blessings and curses as well, but those blessings are ratcheted up. Greater salvation, greater condemnation in the new covenant, right? Because the new covenant is fulfilling the old covenant. It brings about the fullness of what was promised before. So just as the people heard Moses when he received the old covenant from the miraculous burning Mount Sinai, 
and all the people paid attention, so too we must pay attention to Jesus, who brings about a greater message through his apostles, right? Preserved in his word, attested to by the miracles of the Holy Spirit. The apostles sort of operated as the as the uh, foundation makers of the church. You know, when you build a skyscraper for the foundation, you, you bring out bulldozers, cranes, and trucks, you build a scaffolding. That's the beginning phase. Well, that's how the apostolic miracles function. God brings about his new covenant message with greater glory than the old covenant to bring a greater salvation, and the foundation of the church is laid by the apostles doing these massive miracles and writing scripture. That's the foundation, and once the foundation is built, then you have extra phases on top of that, but then you bring in the painter the drywallers, you know, the carpenters, all that kind of stuff. I don't know a ton about construction, but you have different equipment for different phases. And in the initial phase, the miraculous outpouring is concentrated because that's the initial phase of God's salvation going out. Now, how do we bring it all back together? Well, what he's saying is, if you're going to listen to the old covenant, right? And you saw that God was willing to judge whenever you broke the old covenant, whenever you went against God's commands in the old covenant. How much more will he judge if you reject the message of his son? If you reject the message of angels to the old covenant, that's bad. It's even worse if you reject the message coming from God himself. And that's why he spends so much time showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. Remember, Jesus brings a new covenant Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels brought the old covenant. Therefore, the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. It's expanding. It's superior. Don't go backwards. But not only that, he brings a wider scope to the understanding of the blessings of salvation. Let's look at verses 5 to 13. Jesus as the destiny of humanity. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So what is this greater salvation that we see in the new covenant that was foreshadowed in the old but brought to full bloom in the new? Well, we see a quotation of Psalm 8, specifically verses 4 to 6. And in Psalm 8, we see a contrast between the fragile present existence of man with his glorious future inheritance exalted above the angels. So God created Adam to rule over creation, but his sin and the subsequent judgment of death prevents him from reaching that goal. So salvation, again, in this broad sense, refers more than just the forgiveness of sins but the redemption of all that Adam lost for humanity because of his sin. So God has destined us for glory and honor, but we settle for the rags of sin. Adam and Eve chose disobedience to God over glory, but the second Adam, through his obedience to God, to the point of death, reclaims that glory for us. Jesus Christ embodies the destiny of humanity that's described in Psalm 8. The second Adam reclaims what was lost 
by the first Adam. So when we see Son of Man, he's talking about mankind, humanity, that we were made for glory, but we lost it. And therefore, another man must come in our place to reclaim what was lost. So the divine Son humbles himself to a life lower than the angels. His humiliation, him being born to Mary, walking this earth, cutting wood for a decade, walking around, being persecuted, being spat upon, being mocked and slandered and dying a horrible, shameful death. All of that is part of his humiliation. It's, it's part of his life lower than the angels. So that in his death, he might receive glory and honor. That after his death, he might receive the glory and honor of the resurrection. And we too, when we follow him by faith, will receive that same glory and honor that he won for us through the death that he died for us. What Jesus received by merit, eternal blessing, we receive by grace. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we receive all of the benefits that he rightfully earned. So Jesus Christ tasted the death Adam brought into this world in order that he might destroy it forever. So the future age, the age of the kingdom, the glorious new creation that's promised belongs not to angels, but mankind. But when we see our present existence, we do not see all things in subjection to man, right? It's quite the opposite. We feel like we're subject to death. We're subject to sin and evil in the world. Yet faith calls us to look not to our present state, but to Jesus who went before us as the founder or captain of our salvation. God perfected him into our captain through suffering. And when you hear perfected, think qualified or trained rather than morally improved. Jesus Christ never sinned, but he did mature and reveal his perfect character through the crucible of suffering. And this revelation of his sinlessness qualifies him as our perfect representative. So Jesus walked the earth lower than the angels in a state of humiliation, but now he stands above the angels as the exalted one precisely because he suffered, and that becomes true of us. We follow Jesus through death, out the other side to resurrection. His story becomes our story. We don't bring Jesus into our life, but he brings us into his by grace. And he not only brings us into a new humanity, but to a new family. He calls us brothers because we now share the same father. He who sanctifies Jesus Christ, God himself is the only one who sanctifies, also shares a familiar relation to us with we who are being sanctified. Jesus' father becomes our father. We're grafted into that family. We're part of God's family now. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Hebrews expresses his familial love through three Old Testament quotations. First, in Psalm 22, 22, which is a well-known messianic psalm, the Messiah, after receiving deliverance from death, praises God before his brothers as if to say, God has delivered me, and that deliverance is now your deliverance. That the message of God's goodness now goes to you. And second, in Isaiah 8, 17, Isaiah exhorts Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, to trust God while the forces of Assyria threaten to invade. And Jesus Christ exemplifies this trust in God, this faith, and God removes his fear of his enemies. And finally, in Isaiah 8, 18, Isaiah sees God's deliverance as shared by the whole family of God. All three of these passages form a composite picture of the Messiah's triumph over death, God delivering him from death, and then that deliverance being extended out toward all of his brothers and sisters, those whom he calls his own. He is both our brother, who knows our humanity, and also our Lord, who sanctifies us. The divinity and humanity of Jesus make him our perfect high priest. And we see in the enfleshment of God in the incarnation, the perfect unity of God in man. He is not just our savior, he is our brother. We are family with him. And that brings us to this final section, that he is an ever-present help to those who are his family. 
verses 14 to 18 of chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ took on our flesh and blood in order that he might be our representative, so that he might take our penalty of death and destroy death through death. And in doing so, cripples Satan's greatest weapon against us. We fear death because we fear what comes after death, which is judgment. Remember, death is something that God instituted. It's not something that Satan made happen. But Satan uses death as a way to accuse us. His greatest case against us is you are sinners, and when you die, you will face judgment. But Christ, through his death, obtains a forgiveness, a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice that removes death of its condemning power. So that when we face death, it becomes the entrance not to eternal judgment, but eternal glory. God fights for us. He helps us. He doesn't help angels. He helps us. He comes to our aid in a way that he doesn't for angels. And we see that because Christ came in the flesh. God came in the flesh to save us and to serve as our high priest forever. High priests represent the people before God, and they offer sacrifices. And Jesus, as the perfect high priest, is the perfect representative who offers a perfect sacrifice who ensures our perfect, final, and eternal peace with God. We know where we stand with God because we see in Jesus not only the perfect man who fulfills Psalm 8, we not only see the glorified Adam, but we see in Jesus a perfect high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted like we are. He can actually sympathize with the difficulties of our trials. And this builds out in the rest of the book of Hebrews. He's not ashamed to call his brothers. He's not ashamed to call his family. Imagine, imagine a great king. You know, he's before a massive crowd. And he's decked out in royal attire. And he receives his gold, beautiful crown. And he's being worshipped by everybody. And then he picks you out of the crowd and says, that's my brother. What an amazing honor. And not only that, but he says, anytime that he calls me, I pick up the phone and I help. That's called prayer. The God of the universe who condescends, the great son of David, greater than the angels, whom all the angels worship, who laid the foundations of the earth, who is the exalted one, the holy one, the anointed one. He looks at you, if you're in Christ, and says, you're my brother, you're my sister. Anytime you pick up the phone and you call me, I hear it and I help. Right? When you feel tempted to turn away from Jesus, who do you call? You call Jesus. You ask him to help you endure temptation. You ask him to help you when you feel despair. This is amazing. This is where theology touches down. This is where it connects to our life. This is where it hits the earth and actually dwells with us and actually affects our everyday lives. The question is, do we have the faith to ask? Do we really believe this? Hebrews does not allow us to just have abstract thoughts about Jesus up there floating in the sky. No, it comes right down to earth. It takes on flesh and blood. It says to us, you have access to me. You have access to me. You have access to your older brother, to your creator, to your savior, the founder of your 
faith in your salvation, the one who is your high priest who loves you and who can sympathize with your weakness. What an incredible privilege. And all of that is the beginning of prayer. And all of that sets the foundation for the rest of the book of Hebrews. Thank you.